Zechariah chapter 3 this evening. This is the fourth night vision. The central night vision, actually, if you were um, at family night on Wednesday, we talked about how uh, Hebrew authors uh, love to structure things in such a way so that when you get to the middle of something, you know it's really important. There are seven visions. Sometimes scholars will say there are eight. I might have even said there were eight a few weeks back when we introduced the book. I can't recall what I said, but um, that's because the what is often considered the final two really are one vision. So there are seven visions, and that means right here, number four, we have the central one. And it is, I do believe, the most instructive or the most significant as it puts front and center for us the ministry of Jesus Christ in a way that's really unparalleled throughout all the rest of the Old Testament. This is a lodestar text for understanding justification in Jesus Christ, and it doesn't come in the New Testament or in the epistles, but actually comes hundreds of years before Jesus even arrived. Zechariah chapter 3, this is the word of God to us. Then he showed me, he, that's the uh, interpreting angel, me being Zechariah. Then he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right access, the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The grass withers, the flower falls off, the word of our Lord endures forever. There's an old episode from the Andy Griffith show entitled Barney and the Choir. Barney Fife, the um, deputy, joins the local community chorus. uh, And all of the members cringe at his tone-deaf performance. But the thing is, Barney thinks he's really great. He thinks he's actually the best singer that the choir has. And they don't 
know how they can save their upcoming concert uh, with him in it, but they also don't want to hurt his feelings by telling him how bad he really is. So finally, uh, they come together and they devise this plan that they're going to place Barney off to the side and he's going to only sing the solo. And this uh, is a good plan because it makes, uh, makes it that Barney isn't singing throughout the duration of most of the songs, but he thinks he's really important because he's singing the solo. But here's the catch. When it comes time for his solo, they actually cut the mic. And instead, they feed through the speakers at the concert hall uh, the singing of another man who's backstage behind the curtain. He has this operatic baritone, and he sings the exact same solo as Barney is singing it. He's overwhelmed by this voice, and it's hysterical. As you see, Barney's even kind of surprised at how good he sounds as he hears this opera voice coming across the speakers. And yet, he doesn't think... Oh, that, that's not me. He just thinks, wow, I'm better than I realized. And he just keeps on singing the solo. And afterwards, he's looking at everybody as though he's all that. He continues on in his self-assured manner, thinking he's an amazing singer, but never realizing that there was somebody behind the scenes making it all happen. And when I've seen that, I've thought that his reaction is often how we can live the Christian life. We can think that that we're all that, um, but we actually have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. Because, let's admit it, we do not see what it takes to get us, sinners as we are, from hell to heaven. That's not something we can see. We cannot see the daily efforts of the devil and demons to pull us from the grip of God's grace. We do not see uh, the unflagging, unfailing strength of God's mediators, both spirit and son, ensuring that we will be safe and secure and brought at long last to our heavenly home. But at times, since we don't see these things, we can think it's actually all about us. Maybe we really are a really good Christian. But Zechariah 3 pulls back the curtain. Barney didn't see what was happening behind the curtain. Zechariah pulls back the curtain for us, and we see what takes place behind the scenes that ensures we do make it all the way home. Uh, This chapter, friends, is a behind-the-scenes look at your security in Christ. And as we examine this text, we learn that what keeps you in the grip of, of God's grace, what gets you from here to glory, actually has nothing to do with you at all, but everything to do with Him, everything to do with Jesus Christ. That's what we want to... Uh, Keep in mind as we look at this text, we'll look at it under four headings or four sections uh, of this night vision. First, the accusation, then the answer, then the angel or the advocate, and finally we'll consider how the Old Testament saints would have anticipated all of these things coming to be. So first, though, the accusation, which comes implicitly in verse 1, where Satan whose name literally means the accuser, is standing in the heavenly courtroom at Joshua, the high priest's right hand, accusing him. Now, let's remind ourselves, though, of the setting of Zechariah. It takes place uh, during the return from exile when Cyrus had made a decree that the Israelites could return home and they could rebuild their old way of life, their city. 
And this was so important because with no Jerusalem, there was no temple. With no temple, there were no sacrifices. With no sacrifices to the old covenant worshiper, there was no salvation. So getting back home and and rebuilding the city was paramount. But this vision poses a problem for the people of God because they're learning that rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple was not enough. Because we see... That having a temple is nothing if you don't have a priest, if you don't have somebody who's allowed into the temple, who can perform the work of the temple, perform the sacrifices. And here we have Joshua, the high priest at that time, standing in the presence of God. This is what, what priests did in the temple. They're standing before the presence of God, although, as I've said, this seems to take place not inside the temple that was being constructed or even the previous temple, but the heavenly temple. He's in the very throne room of God, the courtroom of God. And he's standing clothed in filthy rags. That's what the text tells us in verse 3. Filthy, clothed with filthy garments. The high priest was supposed to have a clean body and a clean outfit that was representative of the purity needed for people to approach a pure and holy God. So we read in Leviticus 16, he shall put on, this is instructions for the high priest, He should put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist, wear the linen turban. These are all holy garments, and he shall bathe his body in water and then put these on. But in graphic contrast, Joshua is dressed in clothes that are stained literally with excrement. It's the uh, perhaps the worst type of ceremonial defilement imaginable. That's the word here in Hebrew. It has to do with excrement. Uh, Although elsewhere in scripture, it at times stands in for a representation of sin. And that's clearly what's in mind here as well. But here's the problem as Zechariah is seeing it. Uh, So far in his visions, he's been assured that, that, that we, the Israelites, that we have a city. And Uh, We have a temple, or at least it's on its way. We're building it. We're we're, we're working towards it. But that's not enough. Because although we also have a priest, we have one who is unqualified. Unqualified. Uh, One who's actually ineligible to perform the work of a priest. That's the problem. Doesn't matter now if they have a city. Doesn't matter if they have a temple. Doesn't matter if they have a priesthood. Because these priests, represented here as by Joshua, the high priest, they can't do what they're meant to do. They can't enter into the Holy of Holies and offer up sacrifices to atone for sins. And not only can he not bring, and Joshua brings sacrifices for the people, but he's actually actively bringing judgment upon the people. That's what this scene shows us. Not only is he unable to remove the sin of the people, he's He's compounding their sin by standing before God in this way. Because remember, the priests were representatives of the whole nation. That was pictured in their garb where they wore on the breast uh, piece the 12 stones that each had engraved on them one of the tribes, the names of the tribes of Israel. It was a way of saying, as they went into the Holy of Holies, they went with Israel on their heart. That was their ministry. That was their purpose, to bring the people of God before the presence of God. And Joshua's doing that here, and yet he's clothed. In filthy garments. He's polluted through with sin. 
Joshua is not only incapable of standing before the presence of God. Psalm 24 says you need clean hands and a pure heart to do that. He doesn't have that. But he's also then rendering it, in, rendering it an impossibility for the entire nation. Nobody now can come before God. But that is made explicit to Joshua through the accusations of Satan. Satan is in the courtroom on this day. He's the prosecuting attorney. He is doing what he does best, accusing Standing as an adversary, that Satan in Hebrew can mean the accuser or the adversary. Uh, We are not told what he says, but I think it's pretty self-evident, don't you? He's likely pointing out his outfit. And he's saying to the judge, he doesn't deserve to be here. He shouldn't be here. He's pointing out the impure state of his office, the sin of his own heart. Likely, Satan was even drawing out before God, the judge, that Joshua and his people had rightly been sent into exile. Uh, We can picture Satan there saying, you had it right when you called them lo ami, not my people. You had it right. They don't deserve to, to be in your presence. Why did you bring them back? Send them back into captivity. Cast him out. He doesn't belong. And the terrifying thing about this, friends is that Satan isn't wrong. He isn't wrong. There's not a single thing that Satan would have said about Joshua and his his qualifications that would have been wrong. He was unworthy. And because of that, we can perhaps imagine the terror that would have gripped Zechariah as he begins to watch this scene unfold. But in response to the accusation, notice secondly the answer in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And I really want us to pay careful attention here because all of our hope and our comfort and our confidence in the face of Satan's accusations comes from what God says about us. We need to know not what Satan says about our sin, but what our Savior says about our sin. Notice God doesn't argue with the devil. He doesn't tell him that he's wrong. He doesn't try to show him that Joshua really is a stand-up guy. He's not all that bad. Sure, he makes some mistakes here and there, but he's a pretty good priest. His rags aren't that filthy. No, he doesn't do this. Again, Satan is right about Joshua. We need to keep that in mind as we, at times, will feel assailed uh, by the accusations of the devil according uh, um, Uh, The accusations of the devil, as it regards our own personal sin, we should simply acknowledge that what he says about our sin is often true. Yes, he is the father of lies. He has been lying from the beginning. But he doesn't need to lie about our sin because it's bad enough. It really is that awful. What he does, though, is that he doesn't tell us the whole truth, which is just as bad. Uh, He loves to address the evil of our hearts, to point out how we are undeserving of God's grace. This is all true. But he will never, ever tell you what God says about your sin if you are in Christ Jesus. He will never tell you 
what the Lord told him at this moment. That he was rebuked for opening up his mouth to accuse the Lord's people. He'll never tell us that God actually says this in the heavenly courtroom. Be silent, you devil. What you say doesn't define my people. What I say defines my people. And I have not resigned them to the judgment that they deserve, but I have rescued them from it. That's what God says in verse 2. Did you notice that? There's a language of rescue. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? The, the, the image there is a stick that's partially burned, but somebody grabs it out of the fire and it's just charred, but it's not consumed. That's what God is saying about his people. Sure, they've done wickedness. They, they've done evil things. They have in, in some real respects, receive my judgment. Exile is all about God's judgment. But I didn't leave them there. I plucked them from the fire. John Wesley recounts that there was a, a moment when he was only six, year old, six years old that he would never forget. He woke up one night in the middle of the night in the, the old um, uh, parsonage rectory that his family had been living in to find the whole place was up in flames. And the entire family had been rescued, but somehow he had been overlooked. Um, I think that, that he came from a large family, like a, a dozen siblings or something. And somehow he had been uh, overlooked and find, finds himself now in his bedroom, surrounded by the fire. But at the very last moment, just before the roof fell in on him, a neighbor climbed upon another neighbor's shoulders and reached up. And pulled the terrified little John Wesley out from his bedroom window. And later somebody, hearing this testimony of God's preserving grace in Wesley's life, somebody painted a portrait of this scene of the neighbor on the other neighbor reaching up and pulling little John Wesley out. And they painted it and gave it to John Wesley, which he uh, kept with him uh, in his home and reflected on often. But he had added to that portrait at the very bottom the words of Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 2. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Because Wesley understood that this story is a picture for all believers of what it means to get to heaven. All of us, if I can put it this way, in one sense start with one foot in hell. Uh, under the wrath of God. Uh, consigned to the judgment of God, lest he intervene, lest he rescue us. The reason that we're saved isn't because we've earned it. It's never because we've earned the clean hands and the pure heart that are needed to get to heaven. It's not because we're undeserving of the fire. It's because we've been rescued from the fire. That's what it means to get to glory. And so if you're weighed down by the guilt of your Sins, brother or sister, if, you, if you're sensing perhaps that you have no hope, that you have no future, no heavenly love of which to speak, that means you are hearing too much of Satan's words and not enough of your Savior's. Because this is what he does, and this is what he tells us that he does. He loves to rescue people. He loves to rescue people. And this is what Satan loves to do is to not tell us that. It's to accuse us, to trick us. Uh, at least one scholar has made a connection between Zechariah 3 and Genesis 3, that there's a lot of overtones between what the devil's doing here and what he did back in the garden. This is what one scholar writes. In each case, it was his 
own evil presence that confronted a guardian of God's house. Joshua here, Adam there. The guardian who had the duty of repulsing such an unholy intrusion. And each time, Satan's strategy was to, to divert attention to something else and to maintain his own position. He doesn't want the spotlight on him where everybody would say, what are you accusing Joshua for? You don't deserve to be here. That's what the Lord does. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. That's what God replies with here. He replies in Genesis 3 with a curse upon the serpent. And Yahweh's thunderous rebuke does more than just parry the thrust of the opponent. Its effects are devastating. He crushes Satan with this word here. And that's what we sing of, isn't it, in the mighty fortress. One little word shall fell him. That's all it takes. One word from Almighty God. The Lord rebuke you. And there's nothing that, that the devil can say in response to that. If God says, these people are mine, they're not yours, then he is defeated. He's all bark and no bite. And if this is, though, what the accuser did to Adam, if it's what he does to, to Joshua, the high priest, Why wouldn't he do it to you and me? So we need to know the tactics and to not despair and to remember not just the accusation but the answer that God gives. To drown out the voice of Satan with the gracious words of God. We hear those words in Zechariah 3 spoken from the angel of the Lord. This angel is our third consideration tonight. Uh, Interestingly, the angel of the Lord is... It's referred to interchangeably with the Lord himself. And we know why this is. We've talked about it already in our studies as the angel of the Lord appeared in the first vision. That's because the angel of the Lord is none other than the Son of God. Uh, that's proven in numerous places throughout Scripture where this angel receives a, a deference and a worship that no other angel would receive. And the only answer is because this is a pre-incarnate Christ. This is the second person of the Trinity represented for us here. And we see that he is doing, as we saw before in, in Zechariah chapter 1, he's doing what, what he does best. The Son of God doing what the Son of God does best. He is advocating for his people. This angel is the advocate. If, if Satan is standing there as an adversary against Joshua, here we have Christ advocating for him and for all of his people. And what we see is that this advocate does more than just say, um, be silent, Satan. But he actually transforms Joshua's position. He doesn't just say, don't accuse Joshua. That's not your place. But remember, we've said that what, what, what Satan says about Joshua is true. And so what the advocate then does is he... He changes things for Joshua. He changes his condition. He changes his state. And he makes him worthy of that presence. So we see verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Let's let's not give the devil anything to accuse him over. Let's give him new outfit. And then he says to Joshua, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure Vestments. This is the word you must cling to, dear Christian. We are given a picture of what happens behind the scenes in our salvation. And what happens is that Jesus says to you, I have taken your sin away from you. 
I've given you now my own righteousness, pure vestments. That's why we sing, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. In flaming worlds with these arrayed in confidence, I lift up my head. That's the result of being justified, of knowing we have a right standing before God. We lift up our heads. Psalm 3 says God is the lifter of our heads, one of my favorite images in Scripture. Uh, You can picture, um, maybe if you're a parent and you've had this happen, even recently maybe, a child comes as as, um, their own accuser. They've done something wrong. They've broken a rule and they've um, damaged something in the home. And you know something is wrong immediately because of the body language, the way they walk in before you with their shoulders slumped and their head hanging low. That's shame. That's a picture of shame. And it's the parent's responsibility, and the Christian parent should know this better than anybody else, not to let that shame sit, but to take their hand and put it under their child's chin and lift up their head and say, I still love you. That's what the gospel is about. That's what it means to be justified. Our sin weighs us down, but in justification, God places his fatherly hand under our chin and he meets our gaze. He lifts our head and he says, I still love you. This is the word that we need to cling to, that Jesus says to us, that he has taken our iniquity away from us. And this gives us hope and comfort. He has completely reversed our condition. Sinners are made saints. Rebels are made citizens. Outcasts are made uh, uh, sons and heirs. And our filth is replaced with purity. And so, yes, when I am robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I will lift up my head in confidence. And that's, that's what happens to Joshua here. You can see it, can't you? You you can see his head hanging low, uh, standing shamefully before the judge, trembling, knowing that he's filthy, knowing that everything that the accuser has said has been 100% accurate. And then the judge says, no, remove the filthy garments. Put on clean vestments. And, And you can just picture it, can't you, Joshua? Lifting up his head, he can't even believe this. Is it true? Looking around and seeing the angels of heaven coming about him to do the bidding of the Son of God. To make him qualified, to make him worthy to stand in God's presence. Now he's filled with confidence because the one person who could consign him to damnation, not the devil, God himself, that one figure has said, no, 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 I will make him fit for my presence. And he's filled with confidence. And Zechariah is so enraptured with this scene that he gets involved. Verse 5, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. He, he, he wants to get involved in the action too. This is so exciting. So he says, we, we need to do an entire, entire renovation on his outfit. There's not a single aspect of his outfit that isn't changed, just as there isn't one aspect of our souls that isn't cleansed by God's gracious Holy Spirit And as we fast forward to the New Testament, we know what it actually took for Jesus to make this statement. The statement that uh, we read of in verse 4. 
Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. When we get to the New Testament, we know what it takes for him to make that statement. It means not only that he gives us pure vestments, but that he gives us his pure vestments. And not only that, he takes on our filthy garments. That's the shame of the cross. The shame of the cross is not that Jesus hung as a spectacle before a a, a watching world naked. It's that he hung before a watching world, and more than that, before his father dressed in our sin. That was the shame. But that's what it would take so that he could say, wear my vestments. First, he took on ours. We call it the great exchange. We read of this in... Uh, a second century a letter, it's known as the epistle to Diognetus. And this is what uh, that we read there. He says, oh, sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person. While the righteousness of that one should justify many sinners. Oh, sweet exchange. And Paul writes of it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. That's what's behind this statement. I have taken your iniquity from you. He doesn't just take it and and throw it off. He takes it and he puts it on. So that God's judgment would come upon sinners. Or what sinners deserve. That judgment comes, but now it comes at the cross. Because Christ is wearing our filthy rags. That's a reality we look back on. But in Zechariah's day, it was one that they had to look forward to. And it was something that they anticipated. We want to consider that anticipation in closing. And this is primarily the second half of the chapter, verses 6 through 10. Uh, there's this reference made to the anticipation of the things pictured in the vision. And here we learn in verses 6 through 10 that the hope uh, is not simply that Joshua would be reinstated as a high priest, but that there would be a day coming when a great high priest would take over, as it were, and deal with sin once and for all. So notice what happens in the latter half of this chapter. Uh, God tells Joshua that he can remain in this state of blessedness uh, if he works hard to, to keep the blessing that he's received. So we see that he must, verse 7, first walk in God's ways and secondly keep his charge. Uh, there's a twofold aspect here. Walk in his ways, that's a moral command. Keep my charge. That has to do with the work of a priest. You have to do your job too. So be righteous. And be effective at your work. Fulfill the work of a priest. And then there are three things immediately listed that would come as a blessing uh, in response to his obedience. Then you shall rule my house, have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing there. God essentially says, I I will grant uh, Joshua access among the attendants of heaven, the very angels that he's likely seeing before him in this courtroom. Joshua will have um, a a pass to get in, a card that will let him get in. He will be permitted into the heavenly sanctuary if, if he walks in his ways, keeps his charge. 
what Joshua knew, though, and Zechariah knew, Israel knew, and we know as well, is that he couldn't do those things. He could not perfectly walk in God's ways or perfectly execute the, the work of a priest. He has already proven himself to be corrupted by sin. That will be his bent to, to be corrupted all over again. So Joshua hears this, and you, you can imagine he's thinking, that's, that's too much. I, I can't walk in God's ways. And, and just as he's fearing that, God answers that fear and that anxiety in verse 8 when he speaks a word of true hope. Hear now, O Joshua, listen to me. And he essentially says, it's not actually going to be up to you to secure a place in glory. Rather, I will bring my servant the branch. That's the answer that God gives to this unspoken question that Joshua has. What happens when I can't do it? No, no, no. It's actually not up to you. It will be fulfilled through my servant, the branch. Servant, branch, both are messianic titles. They're used a lot in the uh, Old Testament prophets. Isaiah has a, a major section in his prophecy about the servant of the Lord and, and what he would come to fulfill. And branch is a title used by Isaiah and especially Jeremiah. The image is of the ultimate and true descendant from the Israelite family tree through whom the Lord would fulfill his covenant promises. Take as one example, Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our Righteousness. Joshua is to have his hope firmly fixed on this one. On this one, the branch. And this one who is also referred to as a stone in verse 9. Behold, I've placed a stone right in front of Joshua's eyes. The stone I've set before Joshua. Look to him. And there's this reference to the seven eyes that are on the stone that is a bit enigmatic. It may very simply be a way of acknowledging that this is no ordinary stone, but it's a divine representation of God. Actually, if you look, if your Bibles are open there, you see in verse 10 of chapter 4 that the Lord is described as having seven eyes. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. It's a picture of, of the sovereignty of God, the, the inescapable, uh, the, the, the ever-searching sight of God. He sees all, he knows all, he works all things and this stone, Jesus Christ, the one that the builders rejected, that has become the cornerstone. This stone is part of the sovereign and perfect plan of God. This plan that God has orchestrated to culminate in the removal of all of God's people's sin and condemnation. And it says that he does it in a single day. On a single day, God would do this. Did you see that at the end of verse 9? And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This is how we're meant to read these verses 6 through 10. Joshua, yes, you are a priest. You have failed. You're meant to do better. But the, the hope of Israel's salvation isn't dependent on you, but on a greater, a better high priest. Jesus Christ, that stone that the builders rejected, this branch, my servant, he is coming. And when he comes, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And we know that day. 
Five days from today, we will gather together to sing about it. That day when Jesus Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice to remove sins, what does Hebrews say? Once and for all. And through that sacrifice, he has opened up a new and living way into paradise. That's pictured in verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. It's a picture of paradise. A picture of, of unbroken fellowship, of, of community, of productivity, of blessing. That's what Christ has opened up for us. And we can't see how we get there. But friends, when we arrive, we will know. And we can know and we must know even now. Though we can't see it, we must know now. Because God has given us his scriptures to teach us. He's given us Zechariah 3 so that we would know what takes place behind the curtain. Behind the scenes. What What the eye of flesh cannot see, the eye of faith must see. And you and I tonight, we must believe. And what we must believe is this, that what keeps us in the grace of God, what keeps the pull of sin from overwhelming us and dragging us down to hell, what silences the accuser has nothing to do with us at all, but has everything to do with what we are told in verse 5. The close of verse 5, words that should send, a, in one sense, a, a chill down our spines, but also warm our hearts in, in affection for God. Look at the very conclusion of verse 5. And know this, friends, that our whole life long, from conversion to consummation, watching over us, caring for us, advocating for us, What gets us from here to heaven is what we're told right there, that the angel of the Lord is standing by. You can't see him, but he's there for you, guarding and guiding every one of your steps. And his promise is that not a single one that the Father has given him will ever fall away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for Zechariah 3 and for the vision that it gives us of our security, of our salvation, of the ministry of Jesus Christ advocating for us before your throne, uh, drowning out the voice of the accuser. Would we listen to his voice above Satan's? Would we remember what he tells us about our sin? That is that it has been removed from us and he has given us His righteousness. Would that give us all hope and confidence? And would that indeed lift up our heads? We pray it in his name. Amen.